to say a little something about why we're going to be reading the passage that we are. And we've reached um, a point in, in John 8 where um, our Bibles will usually show a passage um, in a slightly smaller font um, and um, include a little note about it. Um, so uh, in a church Bible, if you'd like a church Bible, um, stewards can help you find one. Um, in, uh, if you've got a John journal, do turn there. If you've got a church Bible open in front of you, you'll see um, a note um, in the text um, in the John journals. It's still there in the footnotes, and I put it up on the screen for us just to understand what's going on about this short passage, this short story about a woman caught in adultery being brought to Jesus and the question of um, whether or not anyone is going to stone her. Um, it, is a, it is a famous passage, but um, as the, the footnote suggests, as the, the words on the screen there, um, we are very confident that this doesn't actually belong originally in John's Gospel. Um, the first sentence there, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John chapter 7, verse 53, through to chapter 8, verse 11, in them. Um, our best manuscripts for John's Gospel to understand what the original text was come from the first four centuries. Um, and in none of those manuscripts does this passage appear. John's Gospel goes straight from chapter 7, verse 52, on to chapter 8, verse 12. Um, it's only later that those verses have been given verse numbers and, and chapters. If you look for anyone writing a commentary or anyone preaching on John's gospel in those early centuries, they never mention this passage. Um, it seems to be a passage that has been added a little bit later. Um, the, uh, the second uh, sentence there speaks about how a few manuscripts include these verses, wholly or in part, in a whole load of different places. Um, this seems to be a, a story about Jesus that was in circulation very early, but no one was quite sure what to do with it. Um, and so at some point, it, was, um, it found a home here, though in other manuscripts, you find it put in lots of different places, sometimes in John's Gospel, sometimes in Luke's Gospel. Uh, what um, should we make of it? Um, I think the NIV are right. Um, we together think the NIV is right that this passage probably reflects a, a true story about Jesus, but that it doesn't belong here in John's Gospel. Um, it's not part of God's inspired word for us. Um, and so we're going to pick up reading and preaching from chapter 8, verse 12. Um, if you've got any more questions about that, please feel very free to ask me afterwards. But just one last comment. Um, we should be really encouraged, I think, that our Bibles aren't trying to hide these things from us. Um, they are right there on the page for us. It's really unusual that there's a passage as long as this that we're not sure whether it belongs or not. Mostly you're looking at a word here or a phrase there. God has wonderfully preserved his text, and so um, we can be very confident of the Bibles that we have, and we can be reassured that in those places where there's not complete certainty, our Bibles are open with us to show us those things. That's encouraging. As I say, if you've got any more questions, do um, ask me afterwards. Um, otherwise, Moira is going to come and read for us, picking up from John chapter 8, verse 12. but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as you are. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. I know where I came from, and I know where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. I pass judgment on no one. 
But if I do judge, because I am not alone, I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Me? And you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, Will he kill himself? Is that why he says, Where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you. But he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. Hey everyone. Uh, a plea as we start, uh, do bear with me this morning. My voice isn't quite there like it would ideally be. Uh, and bear with the tech guys as they try to deal with that as well, turning me up and down. Uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, please, this morning, would you enable us to hear your voice and please would we therefore delight in what you have to say amen over the last 15 years or so as i've been a christian there are very few kind of quiet times devotional times times reading god's word that i can kind of really strongly remember that's okay, and that's really normal. And if that's your experience, that you, you, you read the Bible for yourself, but you can't really remember by the next day what you read the day before, that's really normal. And the way that, that that's normal, and that's God's way of doing things often, because his aim is to feed our hearts, not just our memories. So don't, don't be worried if that's the case. There aren't many I can remember, but there is one I can remember really vividly. It's about... 14 years or so ago now, I was on a kind of school residential trip. I was, I, I'd been a Christian maybe a few months. I was kind of lying in my bunk bed in the kind of room that I was staying in with a few friends. And I was reading through John's Gospel. And I remember it vividly, I think because it was just quite a disconcerting experience. Because I'd become a Christian, and one of the things I was told having become a Christian is, we'll start with reading the Gospels, because you'll just see the beauty of Jesus coming off the page. And then as I read John's Gospel, something really disconcerting happened. It felt like the opposite of that was going on. Something felt deeply uncomfortable. And that was the amount and the way that Jesus speaks about himself. Generally speaking, if someone speaks a lot about themselves 
and speaks highly of themselves, that is not a good character trait, is it? We associate that with arrogance, and we don't want to engage with people like that. And yet here I was, reading through John's Gospel, and time and time and time again, that is exactly what Jesus does. He speaks highly of himself a lot. It's I, I, I with Jesus. As a young Christian, that left me really confused. See, I knew I loved Jesus. I knew he had died to save me. I knew he was perfect. But how did this bit make sense? It all felt deeply uncomfortable. Why did he talk so much about himself? Well, as we come to this passage, we have another one of those kind of moments. Did you hear how this passage starts? Jesus spoke again to the people. He said, I am the light of the world. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe those kind of phrases, someone speaking so highly of themselves, kind of puts you off Jesus or at least makes you ask questions about him. For those of us who are Christians, we are probably so used to this that we kind of forget quite how shocking it is. How odd that would be. I mean, just imagine it for a moment. Imagine that you're at work tomorrow morning and a person at the desk next to you or you're on a school run tomorrow morning and the, the parent you're chatting to in the queue or whatever else it will be. Imagine that person leans over and says, by the way, I am the light of the whole world. It would be utterly extraordinary, wouldn't it? You would probably genuinely be thinking, this person needs some help. And so, when we come to Jesus saying words like that, the question for us must be as we start, is it okay for Jesus to speak like that? In fact, more than is it okay, is it good? Jesus said he was perfect. How does this fit? Why is it okay for Jesus to speak like this? The first thing we need to do to help us understand why it's okay is understand exactly what it is he is claiming by these words. So that's the first big thing we're going to see. Jesus' claim. He claims, I am the light of the world. And there are lots of different things that light could possibly be symbolizing for us. So just think about light for a moment. You need light for life. With no light... There's no photosynthesis. Lots of plants don't grow. And the whole food chain falls apart. And the biology teacher's nodding. So I've, I've got that bit right, we're all good. Light is needed for life. Light is needed to see. If you're in a cave, in a deep, dark cave, what do you need at that moment? A torch or a crack of light somewhere. Light is needed for life. Light is needed for sight. And there are lots of other things in the the way the Bible speaks about light. Light is God's presence. We see that time and time again, particularly in the Old Testament. Think of the Exodus narrative. God leads his people out of Egypt, and he leads them through the desert. And where is God in the desert? Ahead of them as a pillar of fire. God's presence is symbolized with light. Other times, light is used as an illustration of understanding. So 
think of those famous words in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. God's word gives light because it gives us understanding, it gives us direction. Light for life, light for sight, light for God's presence, light for guidance and understanding. And then within John's gospel so far, John has used light quite a few times. A few of them are going to pop up on the screen. John says, speaking of Jesus, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light was coming into the world. Later, he says, light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Jesus claims he's the light of the world, and these verses, I think, help us understand a bit about what it actually means when he makes that claim. The the first verses there on the screen show us that that light is a life-giving thing. That life comes from light. And therefore, Jesus, when he says, I am the light of the world, he is saying, I am uniquely the one who is able to give life in this world. And we know who the only person is who can do that. God. Jesus is the light of the world. He is uniquely able to give life. But light is more than that in John's Gospel. Look at that last verse in particular. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. See, light and darkness in John's Gospel are moral categories. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. That is, darkness is associated with evil. And so, light is associated with goodness. For Jesus to come and say, I am the light of the world, he's not just claiming he's the one who's able to give life. He's claiming that he is the only one who lives with no darkness in him. The one with no evil deeds in him is a claim to perfect goodness. It is a claim to being God because God is the only one who is perfectly good. Jesus is saying, I am the one who can give life. I am the one who can live perfectly. And he is also claiming to be the Messiah, the promised one from the Old Testament. And you can see that because as Isaiah speaks about the one who is to come, here's how how Isaiah kind of speaks on God's behalf about this one to come. So God says through Isaiah, I will make you, my Messiah, a light for the Gentiles. The Gentiles being the world. And then again, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. Why? That my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Jesus is coming and he's saying, I am this promised one. This one you've been waiting for. This one who brings salvation, life, goodness to the ends of the earth. I am that one. The wait is over. I am here. And yet, as Jesus comes as the light of the world, our world feels so dark, doesn't it? We're living a couple of hundred years after something called the Enlightenment. And yet, does the world feel very light to you a lot of the time? 
That movement claims that it was going to bring light, and yet isn't our world as dark as ever? This weekend marks the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. There's war in Gaza. There's war in many other places across our world. Barely a day goes by without yet another tragic news story. And all those things are hard. And all those things weigh on us. And yet, it's the darkness closest to home that feels the most acute, isn't it? That's when the world feels really dark. When people personally wrong us, when there's abuse from people that we trusted, when false accusations are thrown against us, whatever it may be, the world is such a dark place. This Enlightenment project it was meant to bring light to the world, so said its, the, its kind of main proponents, it's failed. Because the, the assumptions at the heart of it were faulty. The assumptions at the heart of the Enlightenment project was basically, if you free people up from bondage to believing what you tell them to believe and just let them think freely for themselves, they'll start doing good. And the world will just become a better and a better and a better place. And yet... John says otherwise, and our experience agrees with John. Because we haven't got better and better and better, because by nature we still live in darkness. And so we can be free to think for ourselves, but when we think for ourselves, we think about ourselves and we live for ourselves, and that causes darkness to those around us. Even when we know what's right, it doesn't mean we do what's right. But Jesus comes in and he says, I am the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. Not because he enables us to break free, to think for ourselves. Not like the Enlightenment claimed that the light would come. But because he was perfect light. And he came into a dark world. And he came into the dark world to deal with darkness came into the dark world to deal with darkness in a way that nobody else could. Jesus wasn't one light in the world. He was the light of the world, the only light of the world. He is the only one uniquely able to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, to bring people out of darkness into light. Because those who believe in him receive an incredible promise Look at the rest of verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That isn't a promise that everyone who follows Jesus will then suddenly live perfect lives, never once doing anything that would classify as darkness again. But instead... It is a recognition that they will no longer be enslaved to the darkness, following the darkness, living for nothing but the darkness. They will be set free to enjoy the light of life that starts now, as we start with God's help as his spirit works in us, as we start now to live in the light, and then is fully consummated one day 
as we go to be with the Lord and we see him face to face and we live in perfect light forevermore and we reflect perfect light forevermore. As we started, we thought about the arrogant nature or the arrogant sounding nature of Jesus' claims. The fact that someone time and time again speaks about themselves and lifts themselves up. Being honest, we've understood the claim. It hasn't really helped answer the question yet, has it? Why is it okay for Jesus to elevate himself like this and speak about himself like this? I think there are basically two reasons why it's okay for someone to speak highly of themselves. Firstly, if people need to know it. And secondly, if it's true. If people need to know it, then it's not just trumpeting our own glory, is it? So think of the situation where someone is choking in the restaurant and someone shouts out, is anyone here a doctor? If you are medically qualified, if you are a doctor and you put your hand up at that point, you're not gloating, saying, look everyone, look at the amazing skills I've got in medicine. You're saying, no, I can help. That is a time it's okay to speak about something you're good at. It's okay to speak highly of yourself if other people need to know about it. And secondly, it's okay to speak highly of yourself if it's true. We've seen that based on the claim, if it is true, people do need to know this. If it is true that Jesus is the only light in the darkness, people need to know that. And so it is okay for Jesus to speak of himself this highly if it's true. And that's basically the question the rest of the passage goes about answering. Is this claim true? That's the second thing we're going to see. Jesus' defence. Jesus' defence. Because in verse 13, the Pharisees challenge Jesus. They say in the light of his claim, here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. They say, you're claiming this, but you've got no backup. And Jesus mounts his defense. And in short, in verse 14, what he's basically saying is, I don't need others to back me up because I know who I am. But verse 14 might raise a question for us if our memories are really good. So if you've got a good memory, you might be thinking, yeah, but Jesus, you say this here, what about what you said in John 5? And for most of us whose memories are not that good, the verse is going to come up on the screen. See, here in these words, Jesus says, if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. Two and a half chapters earlier, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. That, on the surface, feels quite concerning, right? Has Jesus just directly contradicted himself? Because if he has, that's a problem. So we need to understand what's going on. And I think what's going on is, back in chapter 5, it's not that Jesus is objectively saying that his testimony isn't valid without witnesses. He's saying that the rules the Jewish leaders had set up made this claim, and he's going to play by their rules. He's saying, if I don't have any other people to testify, you say that that makes my testimony invalid. Okay, let's go with that and let me show you all the other witnesses I have. That's what he does in chapter 5. In chapter 5, he plays by their rules. But by this point, Jesus decided he's not going to play by their rules anymore. He doesn't accept their premise. 
Instead, he asserts that if he testifies on his own behalf, his testimony is valid. When he is speaking about himself and who he is, he doesn't need someone else to back him up. Which I guess is kind of true for all of us, right? If you're speaking about yourself, if you're speaking about yourself, you don't need other people to back you, back you up. If you're testifying to who you are, you don't need other people to back you up. Jesus doesn't need other people to testify about him. His testimony is sufficient because, verse 14, he knows where he came from and where he's going. He knows he was sent from the Father. Four times in this passage we're told he was sent from the Father. That's where he came from. He came from heaven. None of us remember where we came from. Our earliest moments are a mystery to us. But not for Jesus. Just as our earliest moments are a mystery to us, so our future is a mystery to us. But Jesus' future is not a mystery to him. He knows where he's going. That he's going back to his Father. And so he can make the extraordinary claim that he is the light of the world, and he can make it with confidence because he knows where he came from and he knows where he's going. But they miss this. They don't understand this. The Pharisees don't believe this because they judge by human standards, verse 15. And you can see that they judge by human standards because of what happens in verse 18 and 19. Jesus goes on to start speaking about his father. And then you get this question, verse 19. They asked him, where is your father? And it's almost as if, kind of, if you're trying to imagine putting yourself there, it's almost as if they're asking a question, kind of half expecting Jesus' dad to kind of pop out from the crowd and say, hi everyone, I'm the father. They're thinking about a human father. They've missed the point. They've utterly missed what Jesus is saying. Jesus' testimony is valid. It is legitimate for Jesus to testify about himself because he knows where he's come from. He knows where he's going. He is uniquely able to know those things because he is God. And so as he puts his testimony forward, the question is, will we believe that testimony? A quote's going to appear on the screen that I think will help us as we think this through. Should we believe Jesus' testimony? One, uh, this, is, this guy's a, an associate professor of philosophy down at Oxford, he's a Christian. As we think about whether testimony in and of itself, that is when someone says something about themselves, is that sufficient to believe them? He says, a speaker's word gives a hearer reason to believe their testimony. That is our default assumption when someone says something to us should be to believe them unless we have evidence to the contrary. If that all sounds very highbrow and up here and very confusing, let me bring it down to earth and let me help you with the, imagine the conversation if you didn't work like this. If you worked that you wouldn't, as a base assumption, believe people unless you had proof, here's how your first interaction with someone you meet would go. You say, hi, what's your name? And they say, my name's Bob. And they say, Bob, can I see your birth certificate? And then you say, Bob, what's your job? And they tell you, and you say, oh, can I see your contract of employment? And then they, you say, oh, how long have you been in the area? And they tell you, say, they say they've just moved. You say, oh, can I see your, your lease agreement? And on and on it would go. It would be utterly absurd. On a day-to-day -day basis, 
We hear something, and our default assumption is that we believe it. That is just how humans work. Another philosopher puts it like this. It's going to appear on the screen. No normal human being would know anything apart from dependence on receiving testimony. That is a pretty bold claim. But what he is basically saying is everything you know, either someone else has told you and you've believed it, or if you've discovered it for yourself, you have first been told something that was a building block that enabled you to discover that. And without the building block, you couldn't have made the discovery. Every single thing that you know, you receive in one way, shape, or form from testimony. That is the basic way we learn. And so the question is not, why would anyone believe testimony? The question, as Jesus testifies, is will we believe his testimony? On a day-to-day basis, we, re- we believe testimony all the time. When people speak, we automatically believe them unless we have evidence to the contrary. Will we do that with Jesus? And if not, why not when we so willingly believe other people's testimony all the time? That is effectively Jesus' defense. He says, my testimony is valid and you believe other people's testimony, so why are you not believing mine? He's made his defense. He moves, thirdly then, to his prosecution. He's made his claim, he's made his defense, and thirdly, Jesus' prosecution. Let me read verse 21. Once more Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. See, at this point in the narrative, in the the dialogue, Jesus turns the tables. Up to this point, it's been like Jesus is in the spotlight and he's being cross-examined, and now Jesus turns it on them and turns the spotlight on them and says, now it's your turn. He says he's not the one who faces the issue. His hearers are the ones that face an issue. They will, Jesus says, die in their sin. He says, we all live in darkness. And if we do what Jesus said earlier in John, so many people do, and because their deeds are evil, choose to stay in the darkness and reject the light, if we forever stay in darkness, we will die in darkness. And if we die in darkness, we will spend eternity in darkness. And Jesus says that is the default position. And eventually the the light that we do have, because God kindly gives light to all in this world, to some extent, even that light will be taken away. Those who do not believe will die in their sin. Jesus says the issue here is not me and my testimony. The issue that we're facing here is you and what you do with my testimony because you're the ones whose eternities are on the line. Here is the light of the world, the one who came into the world from above, who came into the world to bring people out of darkness, and yet as they see the light, 
they refuse to come to the light because they'd rather stay in darkness. They don't want to come to the one who gives life, the one who gives light. They don't want to come to the one who is God himself because they are from below. They are in darkness. They want to stay in darkness. And if they don't believe in him, there is only one outcome. Verse 24 says this. Jesus says to them, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. If you do not believe that Jesus is the I am, you will die in your sins. That is what Jesus says. The sentence remains on you. That is the default position. It's worth just stopping and pausing on that. Because that is an extraordinarily narrow thing to say. To say that there are only two outcomes, and that entirely hinges on whether you believe in Jesus, is a claim that to most people in our world will get us the label of being narrow-minded. To say that there are only two options, death in sin or life in the light, and only Jesus can move us from one to the other, is a very very narrow-sounding statement. You might find that quite hard. You might find that quite hard, particularly, actually, if you are a Christian and you think of friends and family who currently don't believe in Jesus and you think, if I believe in Jesus, that also means I have to believe that this is what will happen to those I know and love who don't believe in Jesus. That is something that Christians wrestle with. That this is true, but it's not easy. Because it hurts to think of those we love being under this sentence. If that's particularly acute for you, do come and talk to me, probably not after today, because I won't have any voice, but any other day, I'd be more than happy to have that conversation. But this narrowness does just remind us quite why our message is so urgent, doesn't it? Why it is that we're so desperate to make known among the nations what the Lord has done. Because there is only one light in the world. And we've come to know him. There is only one who is uniquely qualified to bring light into this world, who has a unique relationship with the Father who sent him into this world, to whom he's gone back, and who is uniquely obedient to the Father. Look down at verse 29. The one who sent me is with me. There's that unique relationship. He's not left me alone. For I always do what pleases him. Jesus is saying, I am perfect light. In me there is no darkness. Here is Jesus on earth, fully God, fully man, and fully obedient to the will of his Father. And that is not a kind of, his divine nature stops his human nature from sinning. His human nature within him is desperate to sin, but the divine nature holds him back somehow. Now his human nature, though tempted in every way, just as we are, was without sin. Jesus was perfectly obedient in every single way. 
And so he is uniquely able to be the light of the world. He is uniquely able to give us life because he is the only one who will not die in his sins. Or didn't deserve to anyway. He never committed any sin. He never lived in darkness. And yet he went to the cross. And what happened as he hung on the cross? It went dark. The one who was perfectly the light of the world faced darkness. For three hours he lived in darkness. And then he burst forth from that darkness as he came out from the grave to give the light of life. Jesus rests his case. He's made his claim, I am the light of the world. He's made his defense, my testimony is valid. He's prosecuted his opponents, you will die in your sins. And so we're left with one big question, will we believe him? Will we believe that Jesus is the I am? Because that is the question that John's gospel asks us again and again and again. Each time it asks us that question, it asks us with a slightly different shade. And so there's three particular elements to that question that I think are useful to pick up from this passage. Firstly, we need to see the significance of the question. Every day we face a significant number of choices, decisions about whether we will believe what other people say. Most of those choices are ultimately basically insignificant. The person you live with or the person you speak to on the phone at the end of the day tells you what they did with your day, you have, with their day, you have a choice whether to believe them or not. It's basically insignificant whether you believe them or not. I'd encourage you to believe them as a basic principle. We've seen why, but it's pretty much insignificant if you don't. Or you're reading uh, a blog or a newspaper or whatever it will be, and a, a journalist makes a claim. They found out this juicy scoop this bit of information, or they've got access to a leak. Do you believe what they say is true? It ultimately doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. But here, the question of belief could not be more significant. Because there are only two options. Dying in your sin, or living in the light of life. If you refuse to come to the light, eventually that light is taken from you and it's an eternity in darkness that remains. But the other option is to come to the light of life. To, to go to eventually be in that place where we're told there will be no light because the Lord God will be their light. A place of perfect goodness an utterly glorious future where all of the darkness of this world is gone, where we stand face to face with the light of the world. That is how significant the answer to this question is. See the significance of this question. Secondly, don't hope for a different saviour. Don't hope for a different saviour. There's an odd little phrase in verse 21. I don't know if you noticed it. Jesus said, I am going away, and you will look for me. And you stop and you think about that for a second, and you go, wait a second. 
These are the Pharisees who wanted nothing to do with Jesus, who were delighted when Jesus was killed. What does he mean that they will look for him? I am going away and you will look for me. And you think, really? I mean, I guess it could mean you will look for my body and you won't find it. But I don't think that's what's going on. I think what Jesus is saying is, I am going away and you will keep looking for the Messiah. You will keep looking and hoping in this one you think is going to come and he won't ever come because he's already come and you missed him. Ultimately, looking for a different saviour is in vain because there is only one saviour. There is only one Messiah. There is only one who has been sent from the Father to be the light of the world, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Maybe this morning we're hoping for a different saviour. We look at Jesus and we think, there's some things I like about him, but some things I don't. I'm not quite happy to put my hope in him. Maybe there'll be someone better who'll come along. We're waiting for a different solution somehow, something more impressive or something more immediate. Jesus warns us, there is no other option coming. Jesus is the only light of the world. Firstly, see the significance of the question. Secondly, don't hope for a different saviour. Thirdly, know that Jesus' testimony is sufficient. Know that his testimony is sufficient. Because look what happens in verse 30. In verse 30, even as Jesus spoke, many believed in him. Those hearing that day, for some of them, for many of them, they believed in him. His testimony that day was sufficient. Will it be for us? For those who have believed, will we be confident in our beliefs today? Will we be confident that we are no longer facing darkness? That we are no longer heading for death in our sins? Are we confident that we instead have been brought into the light? That we have received life? Will we know that Jesus' testimony is sufficient? What do we do about the outlandish way that Jesus speaks about himself? These claims that he makes, we've seen that we need to hear them because the stakes are so high. We've seen that they're true because his testimony is valid. And so don't be put off when those moments come, when Jesus says things that you think if anyone else said that, that wouldn't be okay. Instead, in those moments, believe in him. He is the only light of the world who alone gives light and life to all who come to him. Let me lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, we praise you for your son, the Lord Jesus. We praise you for the light of the world who has taken us from darkness into light. Please would we believe in him and please would we tell others about him. Amen. We're going to sing together a song that starts speaking of...